Hello and welcome to Locked On Canucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. My name is Justin Morissette. This is your Locked On Canucks podcast for Saturday, October 5th. And uh, I don't want to spend too much time previewing tonight's game against the Calgary Flames because as I record this, uh, puck drop is about three and a half hours away and the game very well has probably happened by the time you are listening to this podcast. I'm sorry that I did not bring you a game preview for Friday. Yesterday, I was laid out with a uh, podcasting injury, I suppose. I, I, I guess I'm just getting old. My back was... Uh, hurting to the point where I just had to lie down for the entire day. This is uh, this is what aging is, I'm told. The first official sign of, uh, of becoming an old man, unfortunately. Uh, yes, I've heard of, uh, of turf toe, of tennis elbow, but uh, I had podcaster's spine yesterday and was not able to fulfill my daily duties, which is why I'm getting a weekend bonus here on Saturday, of course. Uh, Going to be breaking down everything that happens in tonight's Flames and Canucks game, game two of the regular season. For both teams, both teams winless heading into tonight's action. Uh, one of them's going to get a W, and the other one is going to have to keep waiting. If I had to guess, just based on the quality of these teams, Calgary, uh, a, a significantly better team uh, right now in terms of where they are in their development cycle than the Canucks are, I would bet that the Flames are going to take the win here. But again, it's early season, and, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> The best team doesn't always win, especially in the regular season. I'll say it that way. So anything can happen here. And I thought the Canucks showed enough positive signs that they probably could have gotten a win, even though I pushed back maybe against that take the other day in the in the heat of the moment, in the direct aftermath of that loss. I do want to talk more about that loss today a little bit, also uh, address some of the comments that Francesco Aquilini made the other day on Sportsnet 650 in conversation with Sat Shaw and John Jang. Uh, and, of course, the Canucks spent the last couple days uh, doing team bonding activities and practicing in Banff, Alberta, outside of Calgary, as they had a couple days off early in the season. And with a bunch of fresh faces, why not take that time to kind of socially integrate everybody? I thought they might head to Lake Louise and enjoy a picturesque hike, but no, they went to a dude ranch and rode horses all day long. A couple of big takeaways from this team building activity. Elias Pettersson absolutely stunting on all of us as he was wearing, uh, you know, Louis Vuitton and and Gucci and who knows what other kind of designer brands uh, to a dude ranch to ride a horse. And, you know, I I suppose Lil Nas X would be very uh, proud of him as uh, I keep hearing about this old town road. Looks like Elias Pettersson's found a new town road. I don't. That was, I apologize for that. Anyways, moving on. Elias, Elias Patterson may be a bit too stylish to be mucking in the mud uh, next to the horses on a ranch, perhaps. But for one guy in particular, this was an entirely new experience because, and I cannot believe this is true. I really cannot. But Thatcher Demko, Thatcher Demko told his teammates that this team bonding experience on a dude ranch in Banff was the very first time in his life that he had ever seen a horse in person. Now, I know that Thatcher Demko grew up in San Diego, California, but even still, you know, there is a countryside to uh, California. You just need to get off the coast or maybe drive up it a little bit, head north. There is, you know, there's uh, there's heading into the boons. There's uh, getting away from the city. Do people not have acreages? In fact, living in California, 
you would think horses, predominantly, of course, the domain of uh, <laughs> of the wealthy. There's a lot of rich people who probably have uh, a nice little ranch or acreage in the interior of the state, or uh, you know, it's just insane to me. Has he never has he never gone on a road trip with his family and looked out the window as they were driving? Has the family never driven outside of California, the state of California? There's so many different questions to ponder and think about with this stunning like there this cannot be true like can it I, I mean I suppose the boy's life has been dedicated to uh, an indoor sport played in the early morning predominantly when you're practicing as a kid it's all you know 6 a.m ice times or absurd things like that before school so maybe he's just getting shuttled back and forth to the rink and then heads to school and comes home and sleeps at night that's Entirely possible, I suppose, but you know, I just just the fact that <laughs> rich, rich people love horses, they do. All right, and uh, I I'm aware that hockey tries to be for everybody, but it is predominantly uh, the sport of uh, of affluent white people. That's just the way you look at the composition of the league. You look at the the guys who uh, get the opportunity, especially. To play goalie, where the the pads and gear cost all kinds of additional money on top of just you know registration and 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 the equipment that is required to play the sport at all. And look, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I guess, uh, hypothesize on Thatcher Demko's socioeconomic background and upbringing, but at the same time, he is a hockey goalie named Thatcher Demko. Pretty safe to say he grew up uh, pretty well off, I would imagine, anyways. And, you know, I, I would feel like the equivalent of being a hockey boy in California in an affluent uh, area of San Diego, that's the male equivalent of being like a horse girl, I would think. I would, in my head, I've got it worked out that hockey boys date horse girls, and that. The fact, the fact that he's never seen a horse before, I mean, absolutely wild stuff. An admission from Thatcher Demko, who, who did not have a great time riding his horse, but everybody got to tease him and make fun of him. And one guy that everyone can make fun of, there's nothing that says bonding as a group more than that, even if you're the guy who's getting the gears. So uh, great to see the, the formation of some relationships here early in this season. Thatcher Demko, a guy who, of course, was with the team for a good long while last year, but probably didn't feel uh, as much a part of it as he might like. He didn't play very often, and he came in right in the middle in a very odd circumstance in, in January when the team traded Anders Nilsson to Ottawa to officially make room for Demko, um, while not really having time to play him, I suppose. And then Demko got injured, and the whole thing was a bit of a mess, but you know, I'm sure he is really looking forward to having the chance to be here from the very beginning in much the same way that Brock Besser is. Brock Besser has notoriously suffered late-season injuries that uh, have kind of hampered his off-season training, and and he missed camp this year, obviously, so he's, as I said, after the game on Wednesday night, a little bit out of sorts. Uh, the timing isn't quite right as far as uh, chemistry with line mates to start this one, but hey, as you get to know guys off the ice, it really does help with getting to know them on the ice as well. Uh, you would think that it doesn't. I'm sure there's a there would have been a part of me before I worked in hockey and, and got to be around the guys on the bus in junior hockey uh, as much as I was. 
in another life and another uh, iteration of this career. It really the relationships that are forged away from the game really do help the the relationships within the game as well. So uh, you know a nice little team bonding activity, and I suppose being able to ride horses and and play outlaw for a day uh, was just a makeup for being banned from being able to play Red Dead Redemption Two on the road during all of last season. Is that does the video game ban even exist still? Do can we can we get a can we get somebody to ask about that if the guys are allowed to pl- to play PS4? When they're in Buffalo for an extra night or what have you. I would love to find out about that. If anybody who's listening to this happens to be in the media, uh, why don't you ask on my behalf? I would very much appreciate it. Uh, That about does it on that front. A couple more things to break down from Wednesday night's game, however. And that is just the overall opinion on a couple of players who proved to be lightning rods after game one against the Oilers on Wednesday night. First of them is Quinn Hughes, who... I pushed back against some negative uh, criticisms towards Quinn Hughes after Wednesday's game, and I have to realize as well, and I definitely do, that anybody who's being critical of Quinn Hughes after a performance like that or saying that he cost the Canucks the game is very much just a vocal minority. Because if I were to put out a poll question that asked how many people or or which, which Canucks showed the best or gave you the most cause for excitement, in game one, you know, Quinn Hughes is going to run away with that poll by far. One, like 70% of people probably voting for Quinn Hughes in that poll. The people who are being critical, who are saying uh, weak defensive coverage and being soft on the puck, uh, easy to knock off as a check, like those people are uh, a very vocal minority that do not represent, I believe, the vast majority of opinions within Canucks Nation, Canucks Twitter, whatever you want to call it, the Smelosphere. That's not what most people think. But I do want to engage with that opinion a little bit further just because Quinn Hughes is not just out there late in a game, which, by the way, I didn't even talk about his ice time on Thursday morning's show. Uh, The guy played close to 25 minutes, including more than half of the third period. More than 10 minutes of one single period, and that being the one where they were playing tied for much of it, and then gave up the go-ahead goal and needed to climb back in it. Okay, so Quinn Hughes is probably out there for a little bit towards the end of the game because of his offensive instincts are better than anyone else's on the team on the back end anyways. And the Canucks needed a goal. If you needed somebody to get you a zone entry, who is the most likely person to do that? Well, it's Quinn Hughes. His skating ability is going to open up room to enter the zone that other guys are not going to have. And... That might not have been as apparent as it will be over the course of the season against a team that does play the neutral zone trap, forcing a dump and chase like Dave Tippett's Oilers do, as Tippett has already instilled the exact sort of smothering style, painful hockey to watch that he coached in Arizona and Dallas low so many years. But Quinn Hughes is not only out there because the team is looking for offense and they feel like he's the guy who might be able to spark it. You do not play those amount of minutes when you are just an offensive contributor. And I know that there are people who are saying, well, he got shrugged off by Leon Dreisaitl when he went to play the body. That's true. That did happen. You know who else got shrugged off? Alex Edler by Zach Cassian. Are we all bemoaning 
the end of Alex Edler or that Alex Edler is too soft to play in the NHL? Absolutely not. It would be a ridiculous thing to say. Now, Edler has a good couple inches, if not a full foot, on Quinn Hughes, perhaps. No, not, not that many inches. But he's much taller is what I'm trying to say. However, Quinn Hughes doesn't have to play the body to be an effective defenseman. He nearly poked the puck off the stick of Connor McDavid to break up the, what happened to be Edmonton's winning goal. McDavid got a lucky break. Puck came right back to him. You don't need to be a big guy to be an effective defensive defenseman. Look no further than you know a Brian Rafalski if you want to go to the upper echelon. But you don't even have to go beyond the Canucks roster right this second. Troy Stetcher is a very effective defenseman. Troy Stetcher plays excellent defense. Is Troy Stetcher blessed in stature? No. If he was, he wouldn't have to start the year as the number six guy every single season. And I've given grief to Travis Green in the past for the way he's configured his defense. I've said he's outright wrong to come into the year with Tyler Myers and Alex Edler as the first pairing, even though those guys showed very well in game number one. I've said he's outright wrong to treat Troy Stetcher like he's no more than a number six, like he's a guy who needs to be sheltered, used sparingly, put in a uh, bottom pairing role, and even treated as the lesser of the two guys on that pairing, perhaps. I do think that is wrong. But one thing where I will say Travis Green is absolutely right is trusting Quinn Hughes. Because it's not just about offense. Are you kidding me? Look at how Green has cracked the whip, as it were, over the last little while with guys who are supposed to provide that up front. You know, he doesn't particularly trust Jake Vertanen. He certainly never trusted Nikolai Goldobin. And people want to talk about Quinn Hughes as if he's like uh, the Goldobin of defensemen in a way and that, you know, he's just counted on to make these passing plays. Look, obviously at a much higher level, a much higher skill level than Nikolai Goldobin could ever dream. But if Quinn Hughes did not play compelling defense, if he did not know how to position himself properly to be where he needs to be to interrupt plays, if he didn't know how to have an active stick to poke pucks away and do all the things that guys need to do on defense when they are not blessed with the size to simply knock somebody out of the play, if he wasn't able to do that, if Travis Green didn't think he could do that, he wouldn't have played him as much as he did. And it's not going to take long throughout this season to figure out that Quinn Hughes is the best defenseman that this team has in terms of skill set, in terms of instincts, in terms of overall ability. I don't want to wait a full year for Quinn Hughes to finally get his turn to run the power play on PP1. You know, I, I don't want to wait forever for Quinn to, to finally take the lead in terms of overall ice time. And he's not that far off of it right now. He did lead the team, in fact, in even strength ice time in game one. Played more at five on five than any other player on the team. Would Travis Green trust him to do that? if he wasn't an exceptional defensive player who can play well in his own end. I think we all know the way Travis has treated players, whether they're forwards or defensemen over the years, the number of junk D-men that Benning has brought in here to play minutes on Green's teams and Desjardins before him. 
If you can't play, you don't play. And the fact that Quinn Hughes played a lot should tell you a lot about what this coaching staff thinks of him as a defender who can play defense, never mind what he brings to the table offensively. And speaking of not playing, well, some good news on that front. After uh, I, along with several other people who watch this team day in and day out, was very unhappy with the way Brandon Sutter and Louis Erickson played during the sequence that cost the Canucks the game on Wednesday. That awful giveaway, Sutter making a boneheaded pass that got intercepted by Matt Benning. McDavid parts the sea, bolts past everybody, puts the puck behind Markstrom, game over. I thought that you could pin that one solely on Brandon Sutter and Louis Erickson, honestly. I thought Quinn Hughes did a tremendous job to get back into position as both defensemen looked like they were peeling off on a change. I thought he handled it perfectly, honestly. But there's a segment of the media in this city that sort of went into overdrive on Thursday and Friday, working relentlessly, that word that Travis Green likes so much, just relentless in their pursuit of trying to absolve Brandon Sutter of any possible blame for the Canucks dropping that game, of any possible blame for just serving that one right up to one of the best players in the game. That, oh, Canucks Twitter's just being so critical of this guy that they don't like, and he doesn't deserve it, and in fact, he's totally fine. He played perfect. There's a lot of people whose Brandon Sutter defense mechanism kicked into gear and thought, oh, Canucks Twitter is doing what Canucks Twitter does. So emotional, so irrational, flying off the handle again, as we've come to expect time and time again. No, this is not a Canucks Twitter thing, in fact. As you watch the way things have played out, I just talked about Travis Green and the way ice time is doled out and the way the, the lineup is put together. Travis Green clearly felt the same way that I did and the same way that a whole number of people did watching that Sutter giveaway and the lackadaisical back-checking effort to try and stay with the play as it went back the other way from a Louis Erickson. And... It's not even just that moment. Why did that moment happen? It's because that line couldn't clear the zone. They couldn't get it out of their own end. They were hemmed into their own zone. It was kind of a regular thing on Wednesday night, I thought, that every time the Canucks' bottom six forward lines were out there on the ice, it looked like an Edmonton Oilers power play. The few times that Edmonton looked interested in trying to control the game, when they broke out of their trap and actually kept up pressure in the offensive zone, either Sutter or Beagle was the centerman on the ice when those things were happening. I don't think that's a coincidence. And I also think Travis Green agrees with me and with any other fan who was mad at Erickson and Sutter in particular because that line never played again for the rest of the game on Wednesday. And they're not going to play tonight's game in Calgary either. Because Adam Gaudet is drawing into the lineup as the third-line center in between Jake Vertanen and Josh Levo. And first of all, when you see the team try to put together an actual scoring lineup, it just makes you pull your hair out even more that they sent down Sven Berchi, and this is the best-case scenario scoring trio that we can put together for the time being. No disrespect to Levo, and I have faith that Vertanen can still turn into something, but, oh boy. A trio of Berchi, Gaudet, and Levo would certainly have me feeling a lot better heading into tonight's action and heading down the way 
for the rest of the season as well. But that's neither here nor there. What is here and there is that Brandon Sutter has been punted down to the fourth line and not even as a center. He's going to play right wing with Schaller and Beagle. And Louis Erickson is straight out of the lineup. Yes, the ghost himself will not be seen tonight because he will be sitting in the press box. It took a very, very long time last year. Something like 60 games for Louis Erickson to finally be scratched. Game two for Louis to hit the press box this season, and that shows where his game is at, where he's at as a player, and where this coaching staff is at in acting like they're not even going to pretend that he is what he once was. These guys sucked on Wednesday night, revealed the exact tactical error that sending down Berchi always was, and they're paying for the price for it on night two. So if you're in the media and you wanted to paint this as a fan thing, the guys are being cruel to Brandon Sutter, what are you going to say when Travis Green turns around and does the exact same thing and proves us perfectly right? Just, you know, my two cents on that. One last thing on the media, though. Uh, of course, Francesco Aquilini did sit down with John Jang and Satyar Shah live in studio on Thursday morning to uh, talk about the team ahead of the new season as he does his kind of annual media appearance at the beginning of a new year. Um, always puzzled by his tone, honestly. Like, I feel like we would have a lot more uh, time for this guy, that he would take a lot less abuse from uh, from the fans at large if he just sounded like a fan himself. Because that's always what he tries to sell himself as, right? Like, that he loves this team, that he's passionate about this team, which is why he bought this team. Because if any of us had the money to do it, we would have tried to do the same thing. That's how he tries to appear relatable. But he never seems to be having fun with anything. Maybe he just doesn't want to talk to media or is a little bit on guard about whatever is going to be thrown at him. But I never get like, like if you listen to me speak, if you listen to this podcast over the course of however long I've been doing podcasts, not just this one, but ones before, you can kind of hear it in my voice right now. I'm having a fun time. And that warmth kind of translates to the way I communicate. Sure, I was mad about Brandon Sutter a second ago or whatever the heck. But you can hear that I'm smiling right now, can't you? I believe you can. You never hear that from Francesco Aquilini, ever. Like, never. He sounds miserable, which, I mean, the team maybe has not given him a ton to be happy about of late, but it's just an odd form of communication. There were a couple of details that you really had to pick at if you wanted to find anything newsworthy to come out of this interview. Uh, He mentioned that they might tweak the Orca logo down the line uh, as they're going to stay consistent with that as the logo going forward, but might make some changes to it. I would assume he means much, much further in the future, given that they just unveiled brand new jerseys this season, and I would imagine they do not have an inclination to change those right away. Uh, Or maybe they do. Maybe they want to milk us for new jerseys every season. The Whitecaps seem to do that here in Vancouver. Um, (laughs) But when he said that, all I could think of was the way that he has, and his, his design team, has tweaked the stick and rink logo over the course of, you know, however many years it's been now. Because the original stick and rink logo, which was reintroduced to the team in, I want to say, 2006, the 0506 season maybe, as a shoulder patch uh, when the Canucks came back from the lockout that year. That was the original logo, but they even changed the colors on it to match what was you know, the dark blue sort of uh, red Orca logo at that point. They changed the color scheme on the stick and rink, but then they, when they made it the third jersey proper, when they shifted over to the classic blue, green, and white color scheme, 
the logo that we got there was not the classic stick and rink logo. It was made to look more modern or what have you. And the version that's on the third jersey that was rolled out this offseason that they'll play in this year has been changed to look more modern as well. So when he talks about tweaks, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Same basic format, but they might change the way it looks as the years go on. Maybe put a little green into the logo as well. Personally, I hate it when people make mock-ups that put green into the logo, but it is kind of strange that the Canucks are one of the few teams in all of sports whose team colors as a whole are not reflected by their logo. In fact, the shade of blue that's in the logo is radically different from the blue that you would associate with the team jerseys. But that's neither here nor there. The other thing is, he said there's no plans to change the seats in Rogers Arena after uh, Jeff Stipek had said a couple years back that that was, in fact, the plan to renovate the arena, get new chairs, new seats into the bowl, make it a more comfortable experience for people to sit down and have those seats reflect team colors as well. That might have been Jeff Stipek's plan. Jeff Stipek no longer with the organization. Francesco Aquilini saying nobody's ever complained to him that sitting in those seats is uncomfortable. Uh, and so he has no plans to change them for the time being. Also, talking about relatability and, and conveying kind of proper emotion and trying to connect with fans as a human being, he talked about uh, contracts, bad contracts that the team signed over the last several years and if they affect the way he's willing to spend and put the team together today. He said no, but he related it to investing in stocks. If I invest in 10 different things, some of them might bomb some of them might break even, two of them are going to blow up huge, and the ones that boom will cover the rest of everything that I invested in. And I heard this analogy, and I thought, oh, wow, yeah, the common man is really going to connect with this if I invest in 10 different stocks, as we all do, right, don't we? Anyways, that's the show for today. Uh, sorry that it's late. Sorry that I had to uh, just lie down and nurse a spinal injury all day yesterday. Feeling much better today, however. Not sure exactly what happened or what I did differently. But uh, I will be back to talk about tonight's game against the Calgary Flames on Monday morning. I look forward to it and look forward to having you with me. Once again, I'm Justin Morissette, and you've been listening to Locked On Canucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.